You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil. Today, we're welcomed by Dr. Jed Barish, who is a neurologist from Massachusetts. He'll be joining us to discuss his upcoming article from the Journal of Addiction Medicine titled Application of an Existing Syndromic Surveillance System to Quantify Possible Cases of Opioid-Associated Amnestic Syndrome in Massachusetts. Welcome, Dr. Barish. Um, I'd like to start by having you tell us a bit about yourself and why you study addiction. So uh, my name is Jed Barish. I'm a neurologist from Massachusetts, and um, uh, my I think my path to uh, addiction-related research is a little uh, circuitous. I was um, working as a, a neurologist in a, a cognitive disorders clinic um, outside Boston um, in 2012 as uh, part of my uh, first month or so on uh, on wards. Um, as an attending, uh, we had come across this case of a younger uh, guy who had come in for um, some uh, tingling in one of his extremities after a, um, an overdose, thought to be a heroin overdose, um, and um, his uh, parent was with him, and she actually mentioned that he was um, amnestic, he had really severe memory loss, more so than just being, you know, coming out of an, an intoxicated state. Um, and uh, when the, you know, the neurology team examined him, he had a really dense amnesia, inability to form new memories. Um, and, um, and we wound up doing um, an MRI on him. Um, and he had this unusual pattern of damage just in the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain on both sides and only the hippocampus. It was like if it was almost outlining the hippocampus um, in an anatomy book. So it's a really striking image, um, and none of us had seen it before. It's, um, something that we were curious about. His memory loss had you know, persisted for um, quite a long time um, and you know, didn't return um, you know, back to baseline really during the time we were you know, following him. And um, what wound up happening was that I was, I was in clinic a, a couple of years later after that. Um, we had never written up the original case because it's like one thing goes to the next and, you know, it was just you get busy with something. And we thought maybe it was like a fluky thing. And um, I wound up seeing another guy who um, had a history of um, opioid use, uh, supposedly in remission. And the family had um, uh, left on vacation. He stayed behind. Um, and when they came back a few days later, he uh, had this confused state, wasn't sure, you know, why the kids weren't in school, that type of thing. They wound up taking him to the emergency room. He had a workup, um, actually it didn't include a toxicology screen, surprisingly enough, but did include an MRI. The MRI was read as negative and he was still having trouble remembering, you know, new things when he saw me, um, about like six weeks later, um, uh, and so when I wound up um, 
taking the the disc of the MRI from the ER that they had had, I wound up, you know, looking at the end of the day because, you know, it it gets uh, busy during the clinic day and you can't really get the time to like, you know, sit down and go through all the images. And what I was struck by was it was like the exact same images as the uh, person I had seen back in 2012. And I was like, wow, this is, this is um, pretty crazy to, to see this pattern again. And the, this person also had a history of connection between um, the opioid use and the um, amnesia and the imaging findings. And, um, and then, we wound up kind of going from there. Okay, great. Now, can you describe opioid-associated amnestic syndrome and its clinical significance? Yep. So um, basically, um, what wound up happening was is, uh, we wound up identifying several other cases in our system historically um, through record review. Um, and then subsequent to that, um, contacted the Massachusetts Department of Public Health to put out a bulletin, basically, for clinicians to see if they had reported anything similar. Um, and so, um, you know, by uh, 2016, um, we had had uh, this notification um, go out, and um, it was um, responded to pretty quickly. We wound up identifying an additional 10 cases um, through record review. So we basically asked people to um, submit um, uh, identifiers that we could um, review the records with. And um, we compared that to our, a case definition that we set up, which was essentially um, acute onset amnesia and this particular MRI finding, which was, which was um, essentially stroke-like damage in the hippocampi, um, which we said may or may not be associated with opioid um, use because we wanted to cast a broad net. So we got, um, you know, we got um, these 14 cases where there was a really strong history of uh, opioid use. 13 of the 14 either um, tested positive um, for opioid use or had a hit. So uh, we thought there was something unusual going on um, based on that pattern alone. Um, and we wound up because of the, um, you know, these cases had emerged around the time that um, in, in Massachusetts, they had, these cases had started to emerge around the time that fentanyl had emerged as a, um, a major issue in the, um, the drug supply and the, the illicit drug supply. We asked uh, clinicians um, uh, over the course of the following year, we made a reportable disease and asked clinicians to test for, um, for fentanyl, its analogs, and um, uh and uh, and metabolites if they uh, were to see a case. And over the course of that year, we wound up identifying um, four additional cases in Massachusetts, all four of which tested positive for fentanyl and two of which tested positive only for fentanyl. Um, so um, those cases wound up being, those, those four cases wound up being reported in um, New England Journal. And then we wound up kind of going from there. So the, the amnestic syndrome um, kind of as, as, as we know it now, is really this um, acute onset amnestic syndrome with bilateral hippocampal damage um, and um, really characterized by dense um, anterograde um, memory loss, so difficulty forming new memories. Um, and it really seems to last for, it, it, you know, it's not a very, it's not transient. It seems to last for um, at least months um, Falston limited, but it, in, in some more severe cases, 
um, you know, it can, it can go on for a year or even longer. Okay. Now, can you comment on the surveillance and reporting mechanisms that were utilized to gather data about these cases? The, the initial, um, you know, the, the initial surveillance mechanism that we use was kind of traditional reporting. So we put out a bulletin and we asked for clinicians um, and, and um, you know, it was, it was really targeted to clinicians who would be most likely to see these types of cases like neurologists and radiologists, um, like emergency medicine. Um, but it was, you know, the idea was to, um, to have them report if they had seen a, a, a case that sounded consistent with our case definition, which, uh, which as I mentioned, was um, really focused on the sudden onset amnesia and, um, and, and the hippocampal findings. And um, so they would basically what would happen was is they would, e- you know, they would contact us either by, you know, phone or by email to say, you know, I've, I've seen a case. Um, we would collect the information and then um, we had um, the authority is, is, you know, is the department of public health to collect that information and to review it um, for, you know, for, for public health purposes. Um, and so we wound up in those cases, we were able to really go through the, you know, the medical record and, and actually confirm that those cases were consistent with, um, you know, uh, the definition and, you know, you know, what we were seeing. Now to clarify for our listeners, were there clinical features that would indicate opioid associated amnesia versus amnesia from another etiology? Well, I think, um, it's, so the amnesia is, um, I would say, is predominantly um, with the formation of, of new memories. Um, and it's, um, you know, like, for example, uh, probably like clinically what it probably looks most like in terms of just the amnesia it might be like something like transient global amnesia where somebody's um, it really like has no ability to form new memories. The transient global amnesia, by definition, lasts less than 24 hours and usually less, less, you know, far less than that. Um, you know, the, the demographic of the, you know, of the people with the opioid associated amnestic syndrome seemed, seems to obviously match with, um, with pattern of opioid use. It tends to be, um, you know, sudden onset memory loss often, uh, a younger person and generally the ages have been, you know, probably between, you know, teens and, um, you know, forties, although we've had had some cases older than, um, forties, but, but not very commonly. Um, so, you're, you know, you're looking at kind of the, the population who's, who's, um, uh, you know, who's, who's affected by it, you know, transient global amnesia may be probably a little bit more spread out, um, you know, uh, demographically. Um, so that's, that's, that's probably the, the, the big one that looks similar clinically. Okay. Now I want to get to the commentary about your piece by Richard Dutton, which raises a handful of important considerations. Firstly, uh, he questions whether OAS is coincidental or the cause and effect result of opioid ingestion. So is there some indication in the data that would establish a cause and effect relationship? Something you would, you would want to think about for anything, you know, for anything that's, you know, any type of new emerging condition that comes up is you want to see, you know, cause and effect. 
one of the ways you kind of look at that is like, you know, is there, a, you know, is there a plausible mechanism by which that could happen? And and there actually um, has been a fair amount of um, preclinical work looking at um, opioids and um, hippocampal injury. And uh, actually, a lot of that was um, done um, between the 80s and the early 2000s. Um, uh, Andy Kofke, who's an anesthesiologist at the University of Pennsylvania, who I've partnered with in, in some work and continue to partner with, um, did a lot of that like real groundbreaking research in um, work with rodents and 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 even primates. And um, what they found actually is that um, uh, high potency uh, opioids like fentanyl and some of the analogs, what they what it actually does is it causes um, it almost supercharges the metabolism of the hippocampus and some of those associated um, uh, adjacent areas, those limbic structures. Um, and so when they when they um, administered um, fentanyl and similar medications in in these animals, they were able to identify um, excessive metabolic uptake, um, almost like um, excessive electrical activity, almost like seizure-like activity coming from the hippocampus. Um, and then they were able to, you know, sacrifice the animals and look at it pathologically and identify, um, identify injury in those, you know, in those areas. Um, you know, uh, so there was, there, there is some, you know, reasonably good, um, uh, you know, mechanism there um, to, to support that. All right. Now, Dr. Dutton also suggests that opioids are often not pure and may be mixed with other substances that might contribute to hippocampal changes. He gives cocaine as an example. So I was hoping that you might may comment on whether you think that there may be a combination effect or if you think it's mostly due to the opioid. I think there probably is some combination effect. So uh, if you look um, back at case reports, um, probably dating back like 15 years ago, really before this, the kind of the fentanyl wave of the opioid epidemic, um, there's like a handful, maybe like two, maybe three case reports uh, of um, supposedly, uh, you know, this type of picture being seen with cocaine. So it's, 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 it's possible it's seen with cocaine. Um, I, I would point out that those cases didn't specifically test for fentanyl or analog. So I can't say, you know, specifically whether or not that was the case. I mean, it wasn't, you know, as highly um, available, you know, back then as, as it is now in the, in the supply. But I think um, when it, we look kind of like epidemiologically, what we're finding is, is that, you know, the, the cases have um, opioids on board or a history of opioid use almost universally as where cocaine, a history of cocaine use or, or identifying cocaine in the toxicology is like represents a subset of the cases. Um, and I think my sense is, is probably that um, cocaine and, and those types of stimulants may essentially like augment, um, you know, may augment the effect um, in some way, maybe through, you know, some people have postulated that it might be through vasospasm or um, some other means that it might actually, um, you know, stimulate a similar kind of, um, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a similar change um, that you see with um, with the opioids as well. But I, I do think it's, I think what we're seeing now is is primarily 
um, opioid-driven and potentially some of the other substances like in the supply may, may be like amplifying that. It doesn't seem to be like, um, you know, one of the things that he, he raises a question about is like stim, um, would be like a contaminant or adulterant. And I think a, a common contaminant or adulterant would be less likely. And part of the reason for that is that um, those tend to be really epidemiologically limited in um, geographic and temporal scope. This has been going on for like, you know, for 10 years now across, you know, multiple countries and such a wider distribution that it doesn't seem plausible. Um, and there's even a case, you know, there was a, a Canadian case study of a, of a woman with um, a painful episode of um, multiple sclerosis who had, um, had used opioids in the past and um, apparently um, had, you know, run out of um, the uh, opioids she was using, but had maybe fentanyl from a, um, uh, from, from prior and applied, you know, two patches to herself and developed the syndrome from, um, you know, pharmacological fentanyl, which again would support kind of um, fentanyl as like a, you know, a primary driver without a, without necessarily invoking, um, you know, a contaminant or, or other, um, you know, other illicit drugs in the mechanism. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Barish, for coming on the program. Again, his article will be featured in an upcoming issue of the Journal of Addiction Medicine and is titled Application of an Existing Syndromic Surveillance System to Quantify Possible Cases of Opioid-Associated Amnestic Syndrome in Massachusetts. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.